Hello, and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me is my co-host, Rob Lamorgis. Hello, everybody. Now, this week, we'll be discussing two sci-fi films from 1984 that, while quite a bit different in tone, have some similarities in terms of character and theme. The first is The Last Starfighter. Alex Rogan lives in a small trailer park in the California mountains. He has a dream to go to college. You guys think I'm going to hang out here, watch you shine your pickup? Forget it, man. I'm doing something with my life. Start a career. You really are leaving here, aren't you? Of course I'm going away. We're both going away. Both of us, Alex. And most of all, to get out. You get your chance. Important thing is when it comes, you gotta grab it with both hands. Then, one night, a mysterious stranger offers Alex an opportunity he never dreamed of. Who are you? I'm Centauri, and you may. No, you must trust me implicitly. Get in. Nothing Alex Rogan has ever imagined could prepare him for what he is about to experience. <laughs> hey. Why was Alex chosen? And will he ever return? Where are we going? Trust me. Oh, you're gonna love it. Love it. Look out! Oh, dear. The last starfighter. His adventure in space is about to begin. Written by Jonathan Bachel and directed by Nick Castle, The Last Starfighter stars Lance Guest, Catherine Mary Stewart, Dan O'Hurley, and Robert Preston. Now, Rob, what's exciting, one thing that's exciting about The Last Starfighter is that it is kind of a Halloween franchise reunion. Because <laughs> yes. Nick Castle played the shape in the original Halloween, Lance Guest had a major role in Halloween too, and Dan O'Hurley, of course, played the villainous Connell Cochran in one of our favorite movies, Halloween 3, The Season of the Witch. The Last Starfighter is basically built around the wish fulfillment premise, you know, what if all that time you spent playing arcade games wasn't a waste? Um, and, you know, it's, it's, which is a, a great idea. Apparently, uh, writer Jonathan Bachel was inspired by T.H. White's novel of King Arthur, The Once and Future King, and the initial idea is, what if you took the sword and the stone and made it a video game? Uh, Alex Rogan is a young man living in a trailer park in California with his mother and little brother. He longs to leave the trailer park behind and go to college, hopefully alongside his girlfriend Maggie, but doesn't have the financial ability to do so. Little does he realize that the arcade game outside the local convenience store is in actuality a training and testing device placed there by the Star League in order to recruit new Starfighter pilots. And when he posts the highest score ever for the game, he is contacted by Centauri, the game's inventor, who whisks him off to space to help defend the frontier against Zur and the Kodan Armada. And I had not seen the, star, the last Starfighter in a long time, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's It's got a very, very strong Amblin feel, like 80s Amblin feel, even though it wasn't an Amblin film. Absolutely. And I just want to uh, pre-give the spoiler warning here because I'm also not going to spoil uh, The Last Starfighter. I'm going to spoil something else right okay. now. Okay. Um, I love this movie as a child. I have not seen it since then, and I had been so scared... <laughs> to revisit this movie and ruin all of my childhood memories. I was, I, I do really, really enjoy it. Uh, so I was very happy about that. But, and here's the spoiler. I realized that when I first saw this, I had not read Ender's Game. Right. And this movie does take on a, it, it, it does kind of yeah. become the Amblin version of Ender's Game. Uh, Absolutely. Once you, because, uh, in the Amblin version, though, they're just up front. We want you to play a game so that you can then uh, fight our real war for us in Ender's Game. Obviously, that is the twist at the end, that he was not playing a game all along, that it was uh, the real war. And yes. um, this one, I think, by making it up front, makes it feel more... The tone then becomes completely different. 
It's the yeah. the wonder of space and the gee whiz, wouldn't it be great to be part of a cause larger than not only yourself, but larger than anything anyone around you knows about, and you're just the kid from the trailer park, but you're so much more than that in reality. Yes. And 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 that Alex Rogan is is a teenager. He's obviously, you know, he's applying to colleges, he's he's running into problems with his financial aid. Um, he's not, you know, a kid. You know, it's not like they, they took the little brother off, hey, we need you to go kill some people in outer space for us. So it's it's a little bit more, you know, um, you know it's a little bit less, you know, uh, kind of Machiavellian than Ender's Game actually is. Um, it, it's, once again, like Tron, it, it's a movie that reminds me how much I miss arcades and arcade games. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, by the way, the, speaking of the Amblin, again, to me, it has a very Amblin feel. Uh, and, and there's something about those movies, those, you know, those Amblin, those Amblin films that just, they feel so warm and comfortable. And I'm not sure if it's just because we grew up during the 80s, so those were the movies we saw. But I, I also think there's something incredibly, like, homey and, and comfortable. Like, oh, let me, let me curl up under a blanket and have some soup and watch, you know gremlins or something like that it's and this feels very much part of that 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 time yeah and one of the interesting things and i'd, I'd read a little bit um it, you if you've listened to the podcast more than one episode you've probably realized chris is the one who does all of the work and actually researches thing and i just kind of ride along and and just say whatever this time because of the movie i actually looked at some <laughs> things uh and nick castle had talked about um, looking at Lucas and Spielberg's films and wanting mm -hmm. to do something different and realizing that they were masters and sometimes you, they trod the, the path that they did for good, very good reasons. Uh, but as part of that, one of the interesting things was he had noticed that so many of those uh, Amblin style films were set in the suburbs. And yes. so, which I believe this film originally was. He very We did the same research separately. Yeah, uh, that he had wanted to move this into a trailer park to give it a little different feel. And, yeah. and it does get that a different feel as far as the what that means for the community. It's it's much less separated than a a suburb with houses is like, I don't know E.T.'s neighbors, um, right. but I know the neighbor Alex's neighbors. Yeah, although I will say. It is the most homey, quaint trailer park I've yeah. ever seen. Like, it feels kind of warm and inviting, and, you know, yet it's a trailer park. Like, it's it's not like, you know, I think most trailer parks, you know, that, that you're right, where there's, there seems to sometimes be an element. It's it's uh, it's it's very, it's it feels like a, God, it's the most Americana trailer park I can imagine. It's true, and I, I do feel that the costuming, that they the clothing is still very kind of 80s suburb anyway. But I will push back just slightly on the trailer park aspect, Chris, because I grew up in Iowa. Sure. You only work in outer space. I only worked in outer space. I knew uh, I had friends in trailer parks that were larger, but not unlike this kind of uh, like okay. Puma trailer parks in the early 80s. And I have to say there in many ways, that kind of bucolic feel and the sense of community, and it's just kind of like, I mean, I, I would hate, like, one big kind of community party going on. It's not inaccurate. Um, interesting. It was a different world then. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's really interesting, because I, I, again, I, I did not, uh, uh, I did not have that experience, so, so, well, there you go. Um, you know, Alex Rogan, he, to me, feels like such a classic 80s Amblin protagonist. The kids stuck in the small town. Like, he's very similar to me to Billy Peltzer from Gremlins. Even Marty McFly from Back to the Future, uh, who's uh, kind of the, 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 the apex of that style character. Um, it, it, but he just, he feels very, he feels very kind of classic model Amblin young man. And, uh... He's great. I think Lance Guest is great in this movie. Yeah, I Lance Guest is great in this movie. And Alex is a character. He kind of has that... He's got that mix of naivete, but he does seem... Ca I mean, he's very capable when we meet him. Mm -hmm. uh, he's fixing all the stuff around, like, uh, people's electric and uh, machines around the uh, the trailer park. And so... Which also 
I mean, let's just be honest, gives it kind of that Luke Skywalker feel of, well, I, yeah, I was just an underutilized say, kid. Because know? he's got to fix the electrics, he can't go to Tashi Station and pick up some power converters. I mean, you know, go to go to the beach uh, with his friends. Yeah, it's it's absolutely he he's got obligations and responsibilities and and he fulfills them those are the you know he's he, he doesn't just run off uh you know he's a responsible guy um although i will say you know that he goes and plays the arcade game when and and when he's breaking the high score like the whole town comes in, out <laughs> to see it and i'm like no yeah. one no person except the person playing no one cares that much about high score at a video game ever like that is that is like they were really that was the happening in the Starlight Starbright trailer park that night. Yeah, it was played as if everyone was crowded around the TV watching Alex win a gold medal at the Olympics or something. I know. <laughs> but, you know, uh what I what I most loved is even the dog and the cat came to watch. Uh, <laughs> They establish that dog snoozing at the trailer park uh in the very beginning of the movie and uh uh, oh yeah, it's good color. Well, after he does that, then you know it's not long after that he's approached by Centauri, played by Robert Preston, basically playing the same role from the, that he played in the Music Man, and and I mean he's great. You know he is fantastic. Uh, you know he's just got a charm to him from from moment one to the point where I'm like. Alex, should you really get into the car with this strange dude who just pulled up out of nowhere? And I'm like, well, you know, it's Robert Preston, so it's fine. Yeah, and I, uh, a quick aside, again, I, I'd forgotten the music man of it all, uh, just to bring Iowa back in. If you are in Iowa, there will be a production of the music man every single year, somewhere. <laughs> that, is, that is on point for Iowa all the time, so I'm very familiar <laughs> with the music man. Um. <laughs> Yeah, it's and and then you know from there he's whisked off into you know into outer space and that's when when you know the movie kind of that's like Dorothy going you know to Oz from Kansas. The movie's already in color, so there's no no switch to be made. But it's uh, um, you know, but it, it's it's funny because then then you sort of have this period of uh, Alex that trying to not become a starfighter like he's whisked off to sort of the starfighter academy and uh, uh, you know and near rylos and and uh you know then it becomes for a little while refusing the call the movie where it's like oh how many ways can he find to say no yeah in the beginning of it it makes total sense because unlike luke skywalker who was told everything up front Alex is effectively kidnapped and, yes. and taken to space without knowing what's going on. And then he gets up there um, and finds out that, oh, yeah, you're going to you're in this intergalactic war. Which admittedly he handles remarkably well. I mean, you yes. know, all things considered. My, my issue with that that sequence is there was like he mentions, oh, that he's dreaming. You know, he's got to be dreaming, um, you know. But at, at no point do we see him have like the real turn that revelation where oh this is not a dream like we don't have that point and and i kind of wish the movie did because if it did that gives him reason to be like oh no i don't want to do this because if it's just a dream you know rob the other night i had a dream that i was a singing backup for white snake now i can't carry a tune to save my life but it was a dream so who cares wow i think we've just uh <laughs> looked a little into your soul chris <laughs> Uh, and well, but you know, '80s themed dreams to go with no. the '80s themed films. It makes sense. Um, it, it, it's all it's all part of the the, yeah. the unconscious zeitgeist. Yeah. Yes. Were you were you singing back up from the hood of a car? Uh, that's all I need to know. <laughs> I declined to answer that question. Yeah. Speaking of the refusal of the call, it is odd in that Alex eventually does agree that he will fight in uh, the war and be a starfighter. And then uh, gets cold feet at, at the last minute right. and re-refuses the call. And really, it's just so that, uh, again, spoiler alert, he won't be there when Zer attacks and destroys everybody right. else. And thus, he can be the last Starfighter. Exactly. Uh, by the way, I think the, the Star League should consider not keeping all their ships in one place. Yeah, I guess in space they do not have uh, don't keep all your eggs in one basket as a uh, old saying. Just leave a uh, few on Rylos, man. That's, you know, that yeah. way, you know, if, if something goes wrong. 
I, I do want to say, uh, just on the uh, the title of the movie of it all, that there is a point at which it's set up for them to say the title of the movie out loud, and they don't. And it, it <sighs> twisted me up inside. But then later, later they do come through, and they uh, they do say this, uh, the title of the movie, and I was very happy. As well they should. I mean, honestly, that's, uh, you know, that's... it's. It's really good. I mean, again, this is a movie that is full of sort of a, a kind of casual charm. It's it's sort of light. Uh, it's not it's not it's not carrying. Even though you know you have you know the universe at stake and the Star League is at stake, uh, it, it all is done with a very light touch, which gives it um, you know gives gives it. I think uh, you know it's it's a movie you can kind of just throw on at any time. It's like oh okay, that's you know it's uh, it's just fun. Yeah, one thing I did want to bring up to discuss is uh, this film's, at the time, uh, very cutting-edge use of 3D CGI. Absolutely. Uh, when you go to space and you see the spaceships and the space station and the, the battles, it is 3D animation. I would say that the render, the, the textures and skins, are they look like Tron. Uh, yeah. frankly when you're when you're inside the computer world those kinds of ships it's just like flat it works a little differently here because uh sometimes they're even matching a real something they've built practically uh and it just looks so different but i will say so from that angle it's it doesn't hold up super well but clearly they're doing it because you get motion in the shots that are, you know, would have been impossible for them to do practically. So some of the, like the camera going over the space station planet and then having, uh, you know, gunships uh, moving around in frame, you go, the movement there is actually very nice. And so I can see why they did it. You, you can see the trade-off happening. Absolutely. I mean, they, they, again, it, it, it's it's very early computer-generated visual effects. and And by modern standards, there is a kind of, a flatness to it, a, a sort of texturelessness to the the surfaces. But you know what? That doesn't bother me at all. Because first of all, they were bending the curve. You know, I mean, obviously, computer Absolutely. computer generated special effects would didn't stop at you know like at at the last Starfighter. They continued to advance. Uh, you know, to the, we reached the point today where stuff is 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 indistinguishable and whatnot. But like, it's it. it you know, so th this is that doesn't bother me at all. It, it, it's it, to me, it's part of the charm of the movie and part of the forward thinkingness of this production. It's like, oh, they were really they were ahead of the curve and they they took it as far as they could. Uh, and it's you know, again, to me, because the story and characters carry it, you know, uh, that's all fine. You know, it's again, it's like uh, it's like classic Doctor Who. It doesn't bother me that I that the, the monsters made a bubble wrap. It was uh, it was a good monster anyway, you know. Uh, and uh, speaking of Doctor Who, it does make me want to bring up Beta, which we haven't yes. uh, talked about yet. Beta, both a plot device and a character uh, who we meet uh, pretty early on when Centauri kidnaps Alex mm -hmm. into his uh, DeLorean <laughs> spaceship. Yeah. Uh, and this was before Back to the Future, or, yeah. or maybe concurrently being made. Uh, Back to the Future probably was being shot when, when this movie was out. So Beta is in the back seat as Centauri is introducing himself, but Beta's in the shadows. And you yeah, you don't him. see his face. And it turns out that he is a uh, like a humanoid android who touches Alex and a spark happens. And that will allow him to uh, reshape himself to look exactly like Alex and to stay on Earth so that nobody knows Alex is gone. Yes. Um, and they don't really do much with why they bother to do that. Like, uh, they don't really get into the, do the aliens not want Earth people to know, all of that stuff. It's just, they kind of roll with it, and it's fine. The the idea is, is clearly, you know, they weren't, unlike Star Wars, where Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru get, get you know, charbroiled, they were not going to go and kill <laughs> off the whole trailer park, because that would have dramatically changed the tone of this movie if it was, oh yeah, Alex leaves, and then, you know, the 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 Kodan Armada comes down and, you know, and, and wipes that trailer park away. Well, I mean, I guess it gives him more of a motivation to go fight, but it's just not this kind of movie. So therefore, you needed something to, to, to sort of be like, how does people not, how do not people, why isn't there an APB out for Alex Rogan? 
Yeah. And I guess this was uh, the beta section of the movie and beta hiding out the trailer park was something that was expanded. Yeah. uh, Because test audiences really liked him. And I will say this is an instance where I'm very happy that happened, not just because the beta stuff is cool, but it really does give them something to cut back to at home on Earth, which is important because it gets us more of Maggie. And it's weird, even though it's beta, it gets us more of Maggie and Alex's relationship, even though it's beta trying to hide the fact that Alex isn't there. Right. But she doesn't know that. You know, until at least for a while. You know, she thinks it's Alex. So we see how she would behave to him. Yeah, and she's so great in the movie. I I really like uh, Maggie and Alex together. It's actually a a very nice coupling. Uh, But then additionally, you get that whole section with one of the uh, the alien bounty hunters who's come to try and kill Alex, the last starfighter. And you get some uh, alien bounty hunter work at the trailer park, uh, which is also like a really fun sequence. Yeah, no, it's all it's all really good, and that 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 is, um, and and it 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 lays the groundwork for Alex's decision that he makes at the end of the film. So again, we're 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 having this is a, a spoiler zone. So you know, again, uh, I always want to say that, but like uh, you know, you guys know this by now. Um, you know, he does fight the Kodan Armada, and he does uh, defeat uh, Zer, and uh, you know, saves the Star League, and then comes back to Earth. But they need him to continue, like, because he's the last starfighter. They need him to rebuild the Armada. And, yeah, at the end, he comes back. He lands the ship right at the trailer park. And everybody's like, whoa. Uh, and uh, and then, he, you know, he asks Maggie to come along with him. And, and, uh, and, and she does, which is a nice, as opposed to just, hey, I'm going to leave. Like, it's, it's a cool, like, hey, they're off in space, you know, building the, uh, rebuilding the Armada together. The one thing I'll say is that uh, from the very beginning, when Alex is looking at trying to go to college mm-hmm. outside the town, yeah. uh, they've established that Maggie is scared about going because she doesn't want to leave her granny behind. Yeah. Uh, so by the time you get at the end, you still have the moment of Maggie going, but granny. It, and so it's, is Maggie going to go to space? Uh, for a split second, I really thought that Centauri was going to come in and take Granny <laughs> and like be. It's like his love interest in space, even though he's an alien who's not an old man actually. But I was right. like, I thought it was in in eighties movie logic. Uh, but then Granny gives her blessing instead, and I thought, uh, well, that's probably more appropriate than my twisted brain. I I don't love one of the things I don't love about the movie is Centauri's. Um, you know, surprise arrival at the end where he's, oh, hey, I'm okay. I just needed to sleep for a while. Like, there's a there's a great moment, like, where, you know, uh, when when Alex goes back to Earth, uh, you know, he's attacked by this alien bounty hunter and, and Centauri fights him off but suffers a wound. And, you know, is, is it's, it's a slow wound, so he's able to kind of pilot Alex back to the Star League, but then, you know, then, then dies... And then, you know, at the end, you you have him, it's it's like he just comes back out and it's like, hey, I, I just need to sleep for a while. And I feel like it's a little, it's a little, it's like if Obi-Wan Kenobi were waiting for Luke and Leia at the, uh, you know, Luke and, and Leia and, and, and Han at the end of the battle with the Death Star. Where it's like, hey guys, I, you know, I just disappeared for a while, but now I'm back. Uh, which I suppose he does come back, you know, blah, blah, blah. But you know what I mean. It's not the same thing as, hey, he's yeah. okay. Um, but I, I feel that's kind of, uh, they were going in that Amblin direction. So it's more like E.T.'s dead kids. Oh wait, no, he's back to life or the gremlins ruined everything except, well, they kind of didn't. Um, it's got that kind of, you know, we're going to play heavy consequences, but we're going to give you an out so that your kids aren't crying uh, their eyes out when they leave the movie theater. Well, and you know. I, I don't disagree with you, Chris, but I, uh, I I guess I didn't expect Centauri to die in this thing. Is I, I kind of, at, from the moment he went down, I knew he was uh, not a goner. Uh, um <laughs> Uh, they certainly leave the door open the end for a sequel. Uh, you know, there's talk of rebuilding the Star League, and Zur, the main bad guy, uh, is left alive. You know, he he gets into a escape pod at the end. You know, sort of Darth Vader style. He gets away at the end, and you don't know what happened to him. But clearly, you know, set up for uh, his return in a sequel. Him and his stupid scepter. He's got that dumb 
thumb scepter, which and he's he's obsessed with it, and it tells you that he's not a serious threat to be reckoned with. To be perfectly honest, because he's too he's too self involved uh, to be a real threat. Um, I, I couldn't find the answer to this in the four minutes of research I was willing to do for this uh, <laughs> podcast. But if anyone knows, uh, is em- is Zerg in Toy Story a nod to Emperor to Zerg in uh, Last Starfighter, or is it just when you're making a spacey sounding name starting with a Z is going to happen? I don't know. Yeah. But uh, if anyone knows, please let us know because I've reached the end of my typing ability. <laughs> um, there's still talk of uh, you know it's 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 funny that every once in a while you hear talk of a of a last Starfighter sequel. Even in the last couple of years, there's been talk of uh, quote the last Starfighters as being the the the, the possible sequel. Um, and so it, it may we you know in this era of legacy sequels with with Top Gun Maverick being such a, a massive hit. Uh, it is not out of the realm of possibility that we may we may climb back into a gunstar one day to defend the frontier against Zur and the Kodan Armada. I just like saying it, to be perfectly honest, and I wanted to say it one more time. Um, you know, you never know. I mean, hey, they're making a Willow series. Yeah, it's true. Um, another character I just wanted to quickly bring up uh, is Grig who is oh, yeah. the alien navigator in Alex's Gunstar. And very fascinating He's the goose to, to Alex's Maverick. Yeah, and his his uh, the makeup effects are startlingly similar, but they are it's not the same as the alien uh, makeup for Louis Gossett Jr. in Enemy Mine. Yes. Kind of that, uh, you know, with the vaguely reptilian scales for the skin uh, yeah. and a little bit of... Uh, Oh goodness! What would you call it? Almost like you could see some like ridges of bone or yeah. things like that. He's, but, he's uh, a lizard guy. Yeah. He's a lizard guy. I'm I'm a big big enemy mind fan. Uh, oh, like, yeah, yeah. I don't know if there's anywhere where it fits, but I I think that is just a terrific movie that is in some ways largely forgotten. Uh, but I I love Enemy Mine is great, um, and Louis Gossett Jr. is great in it. So is Dennis Quaid. To be truthful. Um, yeah, no, I think I, 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 I'm a big fan of lizard people in general, you know, whether they're sleep mm-hmm. stacks or Gorn or, or Silurians, um, you know, there's something sort of fascinating about, you know, sort of the evolutionary road not taken. What, what would, how, how would we be different if that asteroid hadn't come along when it did? Um, you know, and, and, and he's great. I, you know, it, I, I saw Dana Hurley, he's name in the credits and I was like, wait, who's he playing? And I'm like, oh, he's he's playing Greg. Like he and 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 once mm-hmm. you hear the voice, it's it's like, oh well, there you go. Um, but it's really good. Like it, it's it's again, it's just a thoroughly you know f- fun, entertaining movie that you know is it's it's got just enough danger and excitement to be fun, but not so much that you're gonna that you're gonna scare the kids. Like if uh, if I had a child, I, I you know I'd have no problem just you know showing them the last Starfighter. Hey, here's a fun movie. Enjoy it, you know. It's uh, there's nothing, there's nothing to be worried about in terms of content. No, not at all. And uh, you know, you visually you get some very nice shots throughout, um, including I love that last shot where it's nighttime at the Starlight yes. Starbright, um, you know, uh, trailer park, and then you get uh, the shot of that neon sign, and I think it's yeah. like lower left corner. Yep. And then the ship uh, with Alex and Maggie blasts off on its run across the sky. And it's just very, it's great. very nice, yeah. very classic. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's a classic '80s Amblin style uh, space adventure film, and and uh, you know it was fun to revisit it. I hadn't in a while, but uh, I was glad that I did. While the tone and style of our second film today could not be more different than that of The Last Starfighter, it also revolves around a young man who discovers he has special innate abilities which propel him to become the savior of a planet not his own. Based on the groundbreaking novel by Frank Herbert, this is David Lynch's Dune. You are about to enter a world where the unexpected Many dangers exist on Arrakis. The unknown and incredible secrets have been kept on this planet. And the unbelievable meets. I see two great houses. Few Where kingdoms are built, 
on Earth that moves. But we have worms sign the likes of which even God has never seen. And skies are filled with fire. The prophecy which will cleanse the universe and bring us out of darkness. Where a young warrior Why? is called upon to free his people. A world that holds creation's greatest treasure. He who controls the space controls the universe. And greatest terrors. A world where the mighty this is genocide. The deliberate and systematic destruction of all life on Arrakis. The man. <laughs> I will kill him! I will love you forever. And the magical. Father, the sleeper has awakened! Will have their final battle. the slightest pity or mercy. Emperor, we come for you. Doom, a spectacular journey. Frank Herbert's landmark science fiction novel Dune was first published in 1965. Not only did it cover, not only did it kick off a long-running series of books, it is the best-selling science fiction novel of all time. Development of a feature film adaptation of Dune was in the works as early as 1971 when Planet of the Apes producer Arthur P. Jacobs optioned the rights to the book. A few years later, legendary filmmaker Alejandro Jardawarski, director of such movies as El Topo and The Holy Mountain, mounted an attempt to bring Dune to the screen. Now, his odyssey in attempting to film Frank Herbert's novel is chronicled in a fantastic documentary called Jardawarski's Dune and we highly recommend if you're interested in Dune and it's it's path to the to the movie screen check out this film uh it is a terrific uh chronicle of one of the great movies that might have been what how that movie would have ended up who knows uh but it would have been fascinating and uh, has a tie-in to earlier in the series as well, because that documentary shows how that, that failed Dune was also, in some ways, the genesis for Alien, or at least yes. uh, helped spring Alien to life, and it's fascinating. Yes, because it was during that development phase of Jardarwarski's film that key members of the Alien team were brought together for the first time, including H.R. Giger, Mobius, and writer Dan O'Bannon. And it's, it's fascinating. Jardarwarski's proposed film was was supposed to be somewhere in the ballpark of 10 to 14 hours and with a cast that included Orson Welles, Mick Jagger, David Carradine, and Salvador Dali as the Padasha Emperor Shaddam IV. Um, but unfortunately, it, it didn't, you know, eventually the, the sort of the money got pulled because it was so gargantuan. And uh, eventually the rights went to Dino De Laurentiis, who tried to make the movie with director Ridley Scott, before Ridley Scott left the project to direct Blade Runner. So finally, in 1981, David Lynch, fresh off the success of, of Eraserhead and The Elephant Man, was hired to write and direct, and turned down the opportunity to direct Return of the Jedi to do Doom. Uh, the original plan was for a two-film adaptation that was condensed into one, and I think as we talk about, we'll see that there's simply no way to coherently distill Frank Herbert's novel into a single two-hour and 15-minute movie. It's an impossible task. Um, I, I, I love Dune, and I also recognize its flaws. I think part of it is I'm just a fan of the book and the story. I think all of the various adaptations have some merit to them. You know, they all are, are sort of interesting in their own ways. Uh, but Dune was just a massive, massive project back in 1984. Yeah, and before even getting into the movie itself, um, what a different world we would have had had this version of Dune been a runaway financial success. Oh, uh, yeah. Because it's, it's you know, the, the quote-unquote failure of this movie, uh, David Lynch's next project is Blue Velvet. Yes. Um, and if... If, if the mainstream hadn't worked out or had worked out, I don't know that he would have gone so personal. And in yeah. many ways, I, I don't know if this was a hard period for him personally uh, dealing with all of this or not. But 
at least uh, on a personal level, I am very thankful that this version of Dune was not big because I feel that we got uh, something so much more uh, in, yeah. in the wake of this where he recalibrated uh, what he was going to spend his time on. And uh, anyway, yeah, that's just I mean, a little it, aside. I, I think... You know, in in a lot of ways for David Lynch, you know, from what I can tell, Blue Velvet is a sort of response to Dune. It's a much smaller, more personal film. I'm not sure he makes Blue Velvet, or at least makes it the same way, if Dune hadn't been what it was. I don't think if you have Twin Peaks, if you don't have Blue Velvet. Uh, I think, you know, a world where David Lynch is directing Top Gun is very, very different. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, and, and, and we could go on the, uh, the sliding doors ripple effects, uh, for a while, oh, but yeah. I, I did want to just bring it up because I, I love David Lynch so much oh, as uh, do I. or his, or his work, I guess. As I, do I. I Absolutely. don't know the man outside of when I lived, uh, by him, uh, when he, uh, was out on, uh, I believe it was La Brea, uh, oh, sure. with the, with the cow. With the cow. From, yeah. I, yeah, I actually drove Inland by Empire. him that day. I yes. drove by him that day. It was very wonderful. Uh, <laughs> oh, it, it's great! I love his weather reports. Um, yeah, it's yeah. he's he's fan, he's fantastic. Um, yeah, it, it Dune when it came out in December of '84 landed, uh, you know, with a pretty hard thud at the box office, and uh, you know, it's it, actually Dune and Last Starfighter made about the same in their initial theatrical run. The difference is Last Starfighter cost about fifteen million dollars, where Dune cost about forty-five. So there, you know, there, there you have it. And, and I, I think it's the end. I think the box office disappointment of Dune is the beginning of the end of this initial sci-fi space opera boom that starts with Star Wars. It's not the very end, but it's the beginning of the end because you put, they put so much money into Dune and, and, and it was such a big property because that was a big book, like not just big thick, but like a successful novel, um, you know, it, it, it would it just kind of I think it took a lot of the air out of the tires. It'd be like, imagine how different, you know, the history of gangster films would have been if the Godfather had bombed. You know, you wouldn't it would have just fundamentally changed the course. And I think that's I think that's something of, of what we see here. Um yeah, it the movie's got it, it it's got an incredible cast. Let's just start with that. Kyle McLaughlin plays Paul. Patrick Stewart, Richard Jordan, Jurgen Prochnow, Jose Ferrer, Cyan Phillips, Dean Stockwell, Max von Sydow, Kenneth McMillan, Virginia Madsen, Brad Dourif, Edward McGill, Jack Nance, Sean Young, Alicia Witt, Francesca Annis, and Freddie Jones, both of Krull and Sting mm-hmm. in a metal bikini. Yes. Fantastic. A metal bikini and so much oil. Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah, that's... I mean, can we try to summarize Dune? I mean, it's it's I, all right. We're gonna we're gonna try. The short version is that Dune is set in a distant future where mankind is ruled by a vast interstellar empire, and space travel is made possible by a substance known as spice. The spice is only found on one planet, the desert planet Arrakis, also known as Dune. Uh, and two royal houses, the Atreides and the Carconan, compete for control of this all-important world. Meanwhile, the heir to House Atreides, Paul, begins to discover that he may be more than he seems and will have a pivotal role to play in the battle for Dune and, as by extension, the universe. So it's, you know, I mean, that's that's the, I mean, that's like, that's like saying Lord of the Rings is, is about, you know, a bunch of uh, short guys who go for a walk. I mean, it's it's kind of... You know, that's the most thumbnail you can get. And and that's, let's just get into what happened with Dune. Uh, it's arguably the most controversial movie I think we'll talk about on this series because some people passionately love it, some people hate it, uh, and my own feelings are very complicated. Yeah, um, I think the the first thing for me to say is that obviously the, the truncation of the story and what that does at certain inflection points, it obviously, it, it's hard. Uh, as someone who'd read the book even the first time I saw this, because uh, I just had, um, mm-hmm. it is, I think, a much different adaptation for people who have read the book. Uh, yes. In that I filled in anything that was missing already. And so yes. I, I think that I, I like this uh, quite a bit because of that. I was never lost. Yes. Uh, I don't know about you, Chris, how you... Well, I, I again, I, I, have re- I too have read the book, although I had seen the movie before, that, uh, before I did. I didn't see the movie in the theaters, but I saw it on television and mm-hmm. um, on video. And so I've seen it multiple times before I had read the book. Um, and 
I try to put myself in the in the headspace of someone who had not read the book, who's watching this in the theater for the first time, you know, as their big Christmas movie in December of 84. And I mean, I have to think there's no way you could know what's going on. As you say, if you've read the book or you're familiar with the story, your head fills in the details. But if you don't, it's I think it's it's almost impenetrable if you're not already familiar with the novel. And, I, and don't get me wrong. I think that there's aspects of this movie that are amazing. The production design is amazing. The cast is amazing. There's there's some genuinely innovative work at different levels. But I think if it, it it's set up in a way that if you don't already know the story, you're gonna have no idea what's going on. I mean, you you open it with a close up of Virginia Madsen, which in and of itself is not a bad thing, uh, and then immediately you start getting what amounts to a metric ton of exposition. The beginning is a very delicate time. Know then that it is the year 10,191. The known universe is ruled by the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV, my father. In this time, the most precious substance in the universe is the spice melange. The spice extends life. The spice expands consciousness. The spice is vital to space travel. The spacing guild and its navigators, who the spice has mutated over 4,000 years, use the orange spice gas, which gives them the ability to fold space. That is, travel to any part of the universe without moving. Oh yes. I forgot to tell you, the spice exists on only one planet in the entire universe. A desolate, dry planet with vast deserts. Hidden away within the rocks of these deserts are a people known as the Fremen, who have long held a prophecy that a man would come, a messiah, who would lead them to true freedom. The planet is Arrakis, also known as Dune. Spice Melange, Padishah Emperor, Arrakis, the Spacing Guild, the Bene Gesserit. Um, you know, there's all these things that if you're not already familiar, you know, with, you know, the Kwisatz Haderach, the Chome Company, Sadakar, Fremen, the Landsrod, it's, it's... It's so much. And then the next scene after the intro is the Emperor meeting with the third stage guild navigator who looks like a giant orange larva of some kind. I mean, uh, and and it's just, it's so much and it's so expositionally top heavy that I think there's no way you could know. If you didn't already know, there's no way you could know because it's just so much. It has all the expositional subtlety of a shotgun. It's true, although I, because this is, and this is one of the knocks on this movie, is that there are certain points where you do get a large amount of exposition, uh, often direct or addressed to the audience in one fashion or another. Mm-hmm. What I was really, really kind of doing some soul searching on this, and I'm not sure why, uh, but it's it's never bothered me that much in this movie, and it makes me wonder... Uh, there are often things that are, you know, rules that are handed down to screenwriters. Don't do this, don't do that. Uh, and most of the time, what it really means is, this is very hard to do, so if you're starting out, don't do it, because it's going to be terrible. But they give it that as, is... don't do it. Right. And and I started in my mind comparing the amount of exposition that starts this film to the amount of exposition that starts uh, Fellowship of the Ring. Mm-hmm. And frankly, Fellowship starts with a lot more you are that you have is like true. 10 you have 10 minutes of the exposition about what's going on in the past before like the title comes up and one of the differences i think is that he was given uh jackson was given the money to film it to show not tell yeah yeah i mean he was showing and telling so well, yeah, yeah the but, video going the whole time but you do right. get to see the images uh, and right. i do wonder if if 
Lynch had been allowed, given a lot more money, to do some of that, um, what might have happened? Uh, well, there's an extended TV cut that starts with sort of a bigger prologue where they use, like, concept art. And I haven't seen that in a long time. At some point, i got to go back and check it out. I don't remember it making a huge difference. I think the, the problem is you, 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 go, you have the exposition, and then you go right into the scene with the Emperor and the Guild Navigator, who, by the way, if you don't already know that the Guild Navigator is a human being who's been mutated by the Spice in order to, have, to be able to facilitate faster-than-light travel, you would just think it's some kind of weird alien. Like, I, I think there's, unless you know it, you, you aren't going to know it from, from the conversation that they have. Um, and I think it's just, it's, 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 it's difficult and impenetrable in a way that, to me, you start this movie with Paul, who is, is the emotional center of the story, which is exactly what the 2021 version does with, uh, you know, you begin with Paul. And then you build out from there, as opposed to starting, you know, with with the emperor and the guild navigator, and then having to sort of throw all these things in, um, you know, along the way. Like the movie takes way too long to get to Jessica. Jessica and Paul's relationship is at the core of this story, and we don't meet her until like, you know, a while into the into the film, like half an hour or so. You know, it's like it should be Paul and his mom at the at the jump. Yeah, it's interesting. I uh, we are usually aligned. Uh, for me, I don't mind starting here. It really, to me, is just uh, starting at a different point. It, in many ways, it's giving the overview to everything before you get to Paul. M- again, much like getting the overview of everything about Sauron before we get to Frodo. Interesting. Um, now I, I get that it feels a little rushed, uh, because for time, uh, but I don't think the choice in and of itself is, uh, undoable. See, I think it's that you start with, with a bunch of weird people talking about stuff you don't know. Now I know them cause I, and so I can sort of appreciate It's like, Oh, I get, I get it. Like I know everything they're talking about, but I, I, I can, I'm just trying to put myself in the mindset of someone who is experiencing this story going in cold and it's like uh, about a decade ago there was a movie adaptation of tinker taylor soldier spy the john le carré novel mm-hmm. with um gary oldman was the actor and it's got a great cast and it's a really good movie if you know the book or or the the previous alec guinness miniseries if you know it it's it's a great dramatization of these scenes and moments but if you don't you start in a world that you, it's because they had to rush that, you know, they had to distill so much down into a, a regular two hour running time movie that there's just no way that you don't know if you haven't already read the cliff notes. If you know the story, it's a beautiful adaptation, but it, it, it depends on prior knowledge. And my feeling is it can't, you can't depend on the audience. You know, we do our homework for this show, but you can't depend on the audience to do their homework. They have to, you have to be able to, to give it to them in a way that they're going to understand. Um, don't get me wrong. I, I want to come off as someone who doesn't like the 84 version of Dune. I really do. But I, I, I recognize that I think it has, it, it runs into some difficulties um, because of the, the, the time that they were forced to sort of you know, put this, uh, put this story in. It just, you know, I think doing it in two hours and 15 minutes is really difficult. Uh, but it's got, I mean, there's aspects of it that are amazing. The, the production design by Anthony Masters is incredible. And there's an incredible level of detail to realizing this universe. And I know, Rob, I know you're with me on this. The, the score by Rock Toto is all time great. Yes, that is the I bless the rains down in Africa. Toto does the score for Dune, and it's amazing. Yeah, and it it only in a few very key moments does it kind of go Toto guitar. Uh, it's it's but when it's it does, very, it's great. If you're, oh, it does. Yeah. So Uh-oh. when you're when you're riding a worm, a baby, yeah. you're gonna hear some awesome guitar. Uh, and that opening or the you know the prophecy theme is Brian Eno. Mm-hmm. specifically yes. and there are shades and uh you know when the when the score comes on at the beginning of the film i heard kind of chord combinations that to me were kind of a precursor to what danny elfman winds up doing uh, a few years down the road where oh, it just kind of 
I, it's look, and it's not you're not going to hear it and go, oh, that's you know the score right. of Beetlejuice or anything like that. But it's right. just, oh, I I could see where those kinds of chord poor chord progressions were kind of a one off in this, and you know, and it becomes a whole thing later on. I, I have no, no clue if it's not like listening to Battle Sonic. Beyond the Stars and you're hearing the elements yeah. of Star Trek no. II: The Wrath of Khan. No, but it's uh, it's it, it's just a, it's a great score and and. Uh, you know, back when I, I collect, I mean, there was a time when you, I bought movie soundtracks on CD. I, I, I never had Doom, but I kind of wish that I did. Um, you know, it's the again, the worlds that they create, the home of House Atreides, the planet Caladan, is this beautiful, water-rich planet filled with trees and rain. And it reminds me of Twin Peaks. I'm like, oh, he's mm-hmm. living on space Twin Peaks. You know, it's 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 like the 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 the. The, the palace is all these, it's like heavy, dark wood. And it's like the Great Northern Lodge. It's the futuristic <laughs> version of the Great Northern Lodge. Uh, and it and it fits with, you know, House Atreides, kind of their qualities. And then on the other end of the spectrum is House Harkonnen, or Harkonnen, depending on the version. We're going to go with Harkonnen because that's the pronunciation used in this film. But oftentimes you hear it, Harkonnen. But their homeworld of Gidi Prime is an ecological disaster. And it's like the despoiled urban landscape of Blade Runner if it had been designed by Hieronymus Bosch. It's, uh, yeah. it, it's, and it fits with the, the Harkonnen personality as well because they basically represent everything evil in the universe. And you bring up the Twin Peaks uh, great northern nature of uh, House Atreides. What I, which kind of leads me into one of the things that I, I love about the movie is, and look, many, many scenes are you know, one would say fairly straightforward, but there is this pervading sense of dream logic uh, yes. throughout this film. And this is, uh, even in the the other use of voiceover in this in this movie, which one could say at times is uh, used for to quicken the pace, but it's also used aesthetically where you, you do hear characters' thoughts quite a bit. Yes, yeah, that weird internal monologue, that whispery yeah. internal monologue. And what's interesting about it is it's everybody. It's not yes. just one character. It's not like, oh, we're just going to have Paul's internal monologue. It's everybody gets these weird whispery moments. Uh, and I like them, but I also recognize them as, like, in some ways it, it doesn't quite all work for me. Um, but it, it, yeah. it does, it's, it's interesting, you know. Um, and it's often combined sometimes it's in a scene and you'll just have it in the scene a lot of times uh it will lead into kind of uh a montage of slow dissolving things Mm -hmm. or or not dissolving just cuts and where you do kind of enter into this ethereal quality and uh, it is when i read the book and you read about the with the bene gesserit uh Mm -hmm. and kind of the you know the the mystical stuff is kept very strange. You like you never quite yeah. get a handle on it. And this adaptation is the one that I think for me still gives the greatest feeling of mystery and kind of spirituality. I mean, because this yes. is at its heart that kind of story. Yes. Although although we'll there's some issues with that too, but we'll get to that in a little bit. I sure. think it's you know um, the first two adaptations of Doom the 84 movie that we're talking about, and then there was a 2000 miniseries on the Sci-Fi Channel, to me really illustrate the strengths and weaknesses of their respective mediums. Like the 84 movie has is immersive in terms of its, its world that it creates. And it's got an incredible cast, an incredible design, but it, it just lacks the narrative space to properly adapt the book. Uh, the miniseries is three two-hour installments and has that latitude in order to be able to tell this story at the pace that it should be told, but it can't match David Lynch's film uh, for realizing that world. And and I think the the new movie, the 2021 movie, uh, I think is kind of oh let's let's get let's get both sides now all together now let's get the the ability because they know they're going into it doing a two-part movie that's going to total. You know, somewhere in the ballpark of five hours, it's like, well, okay, that's there. You have the space for it, but actually, I think the first third of the first half of this movie is a pretty good adaptation of the first third of the book. It's in the back half of the movie that they start to run into problems because they're running out of time. It's like, oh, we gotta, we gotta wrap this thing up. Yeah, once, uh, once Paul is, uh, is with the Fremen, it gets very fast, and it really does become kind of a greatest hits of leading the revolution. 
to quote my wife, they yada 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 through half a book. Yeah, it's it's it, there. There's all the stuff about, and and I think it it, it doesn't benefit uh, some of the female characters that well. I think Jessica gets kind of the short shrift, and Shawnee doesn't fare too well either. They are both fuller, richer characters in the book and in some of the other versions. Um, Shawnee, particular, yeah, I, I would say that the relationship between her and Paul, um, it, it it becomes so shorthanded that. I know that they're in love and it's supposed to matter, but I've never seen it happen. And I was I was getting shades of some of the other films that we've seen where right. you are told that there is a relationship and it matters, but you it's it's never there's just no time to build it, and so it makes it uh, just less impactful. Yeah, and I mean we're told early on that the Fremen, who are the native people of Aragas, don't trust easily or quickly, but then they take Paul and Jessica into their trust almost immediately. It's like, oh, well, okay. That's They don't trust easier or quickly in the assembly cut, you know? It's like, but in the theatrical version, you know, mm-hmm. well, we're just going to, we're going to get to it. Um, yeah, it's, the, oh, I did notice, I wanted to, that there's some, a few wipe transitions, you know, yeah. but they're very different than the wipe transitions from Star Wars. It's like, oh, well, they're, they come at you very fast and, and, and they're sort of unsettling in a, in a, in a very interesting way. Um, yeah, I think the second half of the movie Again, I, I like this movie, and I, there's so much of it. The scene where they ride on the sandworm is 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 fantastic. Like it is genuinely fantastic. But it it gets to the biggest and perhaps most fundamental departure from Frank Herbert's novel, and that's with with you know Paul as Messiah, and that's mm-hmm. sort of the interesting. You know, like they make a change in this movie that is sort of a fundamental. Uh, you know, change from the book. In the book, uh, the Atreides learn of the Fremen legends of a messiah called the Mahdi, or the one who will lead us to paradise. And it's said that the Mahdi will turn Arrakis into a lush green paradise. And moreover, this legend was seeded in the Fremen people by the Bene Gesserit centuries earlier, uh, something they did on many worlds in anticipation of the culminations of their eons-long genetic engineering program to create a super being, the Kwisatz Haderach. And, and Paul is the Kwisatz Haderach, but he's, Paul and Jessica deliberately take advantage of this legend that has been, been implanted into the, the, the mythology and lore of the Fremen to sort of set himself up as as the Mahdi. In, in, in fact, the name he takes, Muad'Dib, is deliberately very similar. The 1984 film that makes a big change in that it makes Paul actually the Messiah. <laughs> and that's a big difference. Um, there's no mention of the Bene Gesserit creating the legends. At the end, Paul basically spreads his hands and brings the reins to Arrakis. And it's like, it's really kind of a a fundamental change from the book. Yeah. And if you, and you know, we're talking about the 84 Dune, but to use the modern one as well. Yeah. You, you look at the historical context for these two films, 1984 the end yep. of uh, in the this is a U.S. Uh, produced film, even though uh, De Laurentiis, you know, but it's uh, you know chiefly a lot of of U.S. Uh, artists involved in this thing, and uh, and look, I don't think David Lynch is uh, all for Ronald Reagan's presidency at this time. Maybe he was, but I you I, are. I would it's think not, but yeah. but it's morning in America, and yeah, we've just come out of nineteen seventies. Stagflation has ended. Uh, people are making money. They're feeling better about uh, life in general, even if they have uh, qualms about certain political things. And um, and so you get there's much more a feeling I think at this time of looking up to heroes and not being yeah. so questioning. Uh, well, it's also coming out of the Star Wars period, you know, with, which is yeah. a very classic model heroes kind of journey thing. And 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 Paul. You know, while Paul has the surface elements of Luke Skywalker's journey, and and this is this is a spoiler in a sense for the whole Dunes. I'm I'm just gonna say this: Paul's journey is much more like Anakin than it is of like Luke's. Yeah, kids kids out there who love Timothy Chalamet, it ain't getting better. 
There's things, there's weird, there's rocky, there's rocky stuff ahead. Yeah, it's, uh, and in the modern, in the modern movie that's just been made, uh, having the movie whose central message is, uh, you've been lied to about everything, I think feels a lot more of the current moment politically, not just in the U.S., but I think, uh, in a lot of places, uh, for better and for worse. And I think it is one of the things that makes Frank Herbert's novel so rich is that you can have sort of different adaptations that have very different sensibilities about them. They're all, they all are Dune, but Dune can evolve. That's one of the reasons why, you know, you, you people keep coming back to this, this book and this story, uh, time and again is because you have, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those, it's, it's sort of one of those perennials where it, it, it means something different in 1965 when you're sort of at the counterculture was in its ascendancy was sort of beginning that time it's it and that was a very popular book at that point along with lord of the rings um it, you know it's very different in 1984 and it's very different in 2022 um so it's you know it, it's a testament to to the book uh, i did want to talk about one other element that is um that that is i think a problematic element uh not just of the movie but it goes back to the source material, and that is the the queer coded villain of the Baron Harkonnen, who is this massive, you know, uh, obese, uh, depraved uh, character, who's frankly whose depravity is directly connected to his queerness, and I think that's a, a problem. It's one of those. It's one of the blind spots of Frank Herbert's book. Uh, I think they've mitigated a bit in the in the most recent film version, but in in uh, the David Lynch version, it's kind of full bore, where he, you know he takes this this you know young you know very young looking male and I mean he just kills him and, and and in a very kind of there's a there's there's a sexual energy about it in a very negative way, and I think it's it, it, it's worth pointing out. We talked about how Ming the Merciless mm-hmm. and some of those villains had had kind of the yellow peril. Uh, problem. I think there is a uh, a, a queer coded problem with Harkonnen because because his his homosexuality is directly connected to his malevolence. Yeah, and there is also as long as we're uh, going down this road, there is the white savior problem. Uh, yeah. Paul. Oh yeah. I mean, yes. it's, I mean, you, you could not get more L Arens than uh, <laughs> you know. Yes. It's it, there's very much that element of Lawrence of Arabia and the you know the outsider coming in and being able to do what you poor people could never do on your own. Um, and even in the, even in the newer adaptation, they've been able to tone that down a bit. However, it, it is just kind of at core when you have the outsider coming in and your whole thing is an allegory for oil in the middle East. It's just kind of hard to escape uh, that. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things where in, in Herbert's book, it's somewhat mitigated by the fact that it is all that it is all, you know, a, a setup, in a sense. It's a very, in a sense, uh, you know, uh, the Mahdi is a very long con by the Bene Gesserit on, on the Fremen people. You know, when I say long con, I mean centuries uh, long con. But in, in the 84 movie, in the Lynch movie, you know, he makes it rain. He brings the rain to, to Arrakis. I mean, it's a great scene, but it's like it's almost the antithesis of the of the of the the message of the book. Yeah, which uh, all you know happens quite a bit when people adapt uh, and they you start changing things for you know reasons that you're not looking to necessarily change the theme of the book no. at all. But when you start tinkering, uh, you know there are a lot of moving parts, and um, yeah. even when you are conscious of this stuff, it's very difficult sometimes to to the knock on effects uh amplify in ways that you don't always realize yeah and 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 i think it's it's again i i really like this movie i find it fascinating it has got depth and scale to it uh, but it's it's also i think uh, you know it's got a degree of it's it's a it's not necessarily a great adaptation of the story altogether and i and here's the truth is that you know, a movie is its own thing. It does not just exist as a dramatization of the book. Uh, a movie is its own, you know, 
the Stanley Kubrick Shining is very different from Stephen King's Shining, and they're both uh, really great and really interesting. Um, but there's times when it's like, oh, well, you know, there's a reason why this story kind of works the way it does, and if you make sort of fundamental systemic changes, it, it sort of spins off in another direction, which makes me think of the adaptation of The Bonfire of the Vanities, uh, De Palma's film, which just, like, fundamentally, like, kind of did not work in, a, in the way that, that Tom Wolfe's uh, novel did. Uh, and, and here, I feel like this is somewhere in between, where it's, it's not quite its own thing, but it is. You know, it's it's one of those things where uh, here's the here's the truth that that social media misses is that sometimes two opposing viewpoints can both be true at the same time. That Dune is a fascinating and and fantastic film that is also not necessarily the best possible adaptation of its source material. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have merit. Yeah, and, and I can objectively say clearly the 1984 Dune did not get the most material from the book in and that there are yeah. things, uh, critical story information that just did not, was not able to get in. And yet for me personally, it probably makes me feel like I feel when I read the book more than any other adaptation. And that's, I can't and explain really it. really interesting. Yeah, no, yeah. And, 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 and it's because art is not necessarily logical all the time or to to to, to use uh the words from star trek uh that logic is the beginning of of something not the end uh and and david and and never is this more true than david lynch's dune which in some ways is is a movie that doesn't work but in many ways is a movie that does and and the ways it works are are more ephemeral it, it works in terms of 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 images and sound and the way they make you feel, um, you know, and 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 I think that's, I mean, again, I I love, I love this movie. I also struggle with this movie, and both of those things can be true. What I do know is that there weren't that many kids asking for weirding module toys for Christmas 1984. But boy, did I want one. Well, yeah. <laughs> Which again, we, this I think that that's a good place to stop for this week. Um, we have one more episode to go in our current cycle. Um, we have uh, we will we'll sort of bring the uh, the Star Wars cycle to an end next week, um, where we'll discuss uh, the animated film Star Chaser: The Legend of Orin, uh, as well as the live action adaptation of Masters of the Universe, and to close out our Star Wars series. Mel Brooks' classic sci-fi satire, Spaceballs. Uh, thank you so much for listening. We are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed our program, please consider subscribing, following us on Twitter and Instagram at GetMeAnotherPod. If you can give us a five-star rating at Apple Podcasts, that helps us tremendously. We hope to see you next week as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, get me another.